you can go ahead and turn to John 20. And as you're turning there, I do want you to think about eyewitness testimony, which can be so critical in solving a crime and determining whether someone is innocent or whether they're, they're guilty. It's critical to us knowing what happened in the past, in history. I remember so well when I moved here that I learned things about Ras al-Khaimah by people who had lived here a long time telling me about them. They saw it or they lived through it. And I believed them. I took for granted that what they were saying was credible, that they were credible. I mean, you and I do this all the time. If you're talking to someone that you generally know and they tell you something about the past, you just simply normally believe them. It's how we know things. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead, if it's true, well, it, it does change everything about world history. It means that world history is going somewhere, that it's about someone. Of course, this, this church is all in on it. We're, we're basing everything on the fact that it's true, that this, this happened. There's so many things Jesus could have done when he was raised from the dead. He could have gone to Pilate. He could have gone to the chief priest. I'm back. He could have gone to so many people who, who wronged him. What did he do? Very carefully, methodically, he went to those who followed him. He wanted them to see him with their own eyes. He wanted them to be certain that everything he had said to them was true. And he wanted them to get busy because there was work to do. Last week, we looked at the first 10 verses of John 20, and we just saw there the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. This week, we move to verse 11, all the way to verse 23, and we begin to see what Jesus did once he was raised. Here's the main point that I want you to get this morning. The risen Jesus was seen, kept his promises, and now there's work to do. The risen Jesus was seen and he kept his promises. And now there's work to do. Everybody have it? Seen, kept his promises, and now there's work to do. Let's, we're gonna look at this in two the two scenes of this text. First, weeping to wonder. Number one, weeping to wonder. Weeping to wonder. I'm going to read verses 11 through 18. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. 
They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbanai, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. So when we left last week, we left John and Peter, the empty tomb, them going back to their homes. John saw and believed. We don't know what Peter thought in that tomb, but they went. But Mary stayed weeping. And she looks back into the tomb and there's two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. Now, some of you will know that Matthew and Mark mention one angel. John cites two angels. Don't think of that as a discrepancy in the Gospels, but more as the Gospel writers <laughs> having different interests. Uh, this is like different eyewitnesses seeing the same car wreck. They're going to emphasize different aspects of the same event. Their reporting of it will reflect the different perspectives that they had. So Matthew and Mark's interest is in what the one angel spoke. John has a different interest, which we're going to see. Now, because of the distance of time and even of perhaps cultural realities, it can be easy to read about these two angels and to simply think of them as sweet, not threatening. I hope you don't think of them as cute little leprechauns. In Scripture, when mortal, sinful human beings encounter angels, they fall to the ground. Angels are powerful, created beings, mostly unseen, but whose work affects the world that we live in. These two angels at that tomb are there in glory and power. The white in which they're dressed would have indicated their glory. That's what Luke says. Their clothes gleamed like lightning. And the women were afraid and fell to the ground. That's what you see again and again when human beings encounter angels. Seeing these angels would have been overwhelming to Mary. And their presence at the tomb this very morning indicated that what had happened there was a mighty, mighty work of God. The tomb 
And the body that laid there was not under Rome's authority. It was under God's. You're meant to see that whether it was Roman guards, whether it was a great stone, ultimately human power cannot stop the work of God. The angels did not ask the Roman government for permission to be there. They're certainly not in a panic. Mary was. They asked her, woman, why are you weeping? Of course, we know why she was weeping. But these angels mean for Mary to start to see this tomb is empty because God has worked. So see this. What are even the worst tragedies to us are always the unfolding good plan and good purposes of God. Nothing stops that in this world. These two angels at the very sovereign command of the God who created them went to the tomb and made themselves visible to Mary. God, not men, rules here. This is God's power. It's God's kindness. After that weekend, where they had with their own eyes seen so much visible, intense opposition to the innocent Jesus, God makes visible to invisible angels. To this, and we do know other precious women to confirm their faith, to strengthen their faith. And God meant for them, and he means for you and me to see that all that we see in this world is not all there is. As we gather this morning, we join with innumerable angels giving glory to God in his universe. And as we scatter in the week, we scatter into a world in which unseen angels are doing the bidding and work of God. All that we see is not all that there is. Christians are those who know that human power is just that, human power. And we're meant to see human power is nothing before God. And we're also meant to see, and Mary was meant to see, that the presence of the angels means this was no grave robbery. Far from being taken by robbers, Jesus' body was attended to by the angels of God. But Mary doesn't understand that yet. To their question, why are you weeping? Mary replies in the only way she knows how. They have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. She wants to know where he's laid, but verse 14, she turns and sees him standing. He's not laying anywhere. He is standing. But she didn't know it was Jesus. Resurrection is nowhere close to her mind. Why didn't she recognize him? Well, she wasn't expecting this. I think you can understand that. Uh, she had been crying hard. It probably was not fully light yet. I mean, you can just hear the way she would have recounted this to John as she told him this story, that she, she turned around quickly and 
it was Jesus, but she didn't even think about it. And so she just quickly turned back around to these angels present. And so Jesus, verse 15, asked her the very same question as the angels. Why are you weeping? And she's still in tears. Now she should be putting it together that she shouldn't be weeping. But Jesus won't stop asking her questions. He asked her, whom are you seeking? Now Jesus never wasted questions before he was crucified. And he's not wasting questions after he's been raised. Jesus asked the soldiers who came to arrest him just a few nights earlier, the very same question. Whom do you seek? He wasn't hiding before he was crucified. He's not hiding after his resurrection. And when he identified himself to the soldiers, they arrested him. How different is Mary? She initially thinks he's a gardener who must know where the body is or took it himself. But notice how Jesus identifies himself to Mary. He does not say his own name. He says hers. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which means teacher. She did not know him. She did not recognize him, but he knew her and he recognized her. And notice she does not see him for who he truly is until she hears him call her name. And she ran to him in worship. Can you imagine what it must have been like the moment she heard the risen Jesus say, Mary? When we first moved here, <clears throat> Jenny's brother and his family, they lived in Singapore at the time. They visited us here over Christmas. So we did what a lot of people do when family come here. We decided we wanted to go to the most crowded place possible in the country over Christmas. And we all went to the Dubai Mall. Now, their family had five kids at the time, and we were on our way, but we weren't there yet. We had three kids, and everything was going great. We're walking through the mall, and then suddenly, if you've seen the movie, it really was that scene from Home Alone. We realized that with all of these kids, that one of them, Ella, was completely missing. She was nowhere to be found, nowhere to be found. And the mall was packed. Of course, in that moment, you can feel this, everything for you stops, but the crowds don't stop. The energy just keeps frantically going, and here we are looking for Ella. And we end up splitting up. We had cell phones, so we were communicating by cell phones, and long story short, suddenly and eventually we did find her, praise the Lord, with a security guard. But when she was found, I will never forget her tears, and I will never forget her mother through them all yelling, Ella! And her daughter from a long way turned immediately and knew it was her mother's voice. Mary was lost, but in a very different way that morning. 
She could not understand what was happening. Her world was lost. And strangely, she doesn't see Jesus as the risen Jesus until she hears Jesus say her name. She moves from weeping to wonder. See Mary weeping. Where is he laid as in sorrow? She turns from the empty tomb. Here's a voice speaking, calling her name. It's the master, the Lord, raised to life again. Who was Mary? Fundamentally, she was one of the sheep he came to save. And he wanted her to see him and to know he was keeping his promises. It's exactly as he taught. Back in John 10, verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. Brothers and sisters, Jesus knows his sheep. He seeks his sheep. He finds his sheep. And he calls his sheep by name. While it's different from what Mary experienced that morning, there's not one sheep whom Jesus hasn't just known, but whom Jesus calls by name. The risen Jesus, when he came out of the grave, is the very Jesus he declared and he revealed to the world that he was the good shepherd who knows his sheep. Have you thought about the fact that Jesus has called you by name? He knows your name if you're trusting him. He gladly speaks your name to the Father. It would be the wrong conclusion that who he is now and all of his power and authority in the universe means that somehow he's too powerful to care for you by name. That when he had risen from the dead, he didn't go to those who had mistreated him. He went to his sheep. He found Mary and he called her by name. Jesus really is strong and kind. This universe, it's so vast, massive. It's not impersonal. It's fundamentally personal. The risen Christ knows you by name as a Christian means you're never lost. Your circumstances aren't lost. You haven't spun out of control. That's an impossibility for you as a Christian when the king of love is your good shepherd. He knows your boundaries. He knows your name. Here's Mary. Her whole world was lost and she has no idea how found she is. She has has no idea how seen she was, how known she was by her Lord that morning. Same is so true for you. No matter where you go or where your life is, you can't escape God's personal dealings with his people in his universe. Brother and sister who's trusting Jesus Christ, he knows your name and he calls you by it. When he called Mary, she must have just run toward him. 
She must have, she must have fell at his feet. She must have been clinging to Jesus. That's why he says in verse 17, do not cling to me. I'm not yet ascended to the Father. Now, John wants you to read that for a number of reasons, but he wants you to know she didn't just see him and hear him, she touched him. He wasn't a ghost. This wasn't a dream. I can't imagine the joy. She, all she wanted that morning was to find his body. And she was ultimately found by him, alive. Jesus is the Savior who surprises his people with joy in our world of death. As I was thinking about this, I could not help but think of the, the first garden scene in the scriptures, the very beginning of the world and creation. In that garden, there was life eternal on the line. And when the Lord went to find the man and the woman, he, he called for them. They did not come running to him in worship and adoration. They hid from him in shame. They were sent out from that garden to a world of thorns and, and death. I wonder if we're meant to think about that garden scene in this garden scene. In this one, here's a tomb. It becomes so accepted in this old world of death. And the tomb was empty. And here's Mary lost in her grief, convinced she now lives in a world where her own Lord has been lost, while all along, the Lord is the gardener, walking in the garden, and he finds her. And he calls her by her name, Mary. Except this time, there is no hiding from him. She runs to him. She clings to his feet. Only, only, the sovereign Lord of history could write a story this good, a story this true. We know that Jesus had cast demons out of her. We know that Jesus had seen her for who she was and loved her for who she was at her very worst so that she would see him and love him. Brothers and sisters, that tomb is empty. Christ is raised. Death is defeated. Jesus keeps his promises. And on the very first day of the new creation, he came to Mary and he came to her in life, not with a word of judgment, not with the sentence of death as in the first creation, but with the word of life and of hope. When he had said to Mary that not to cling to her because he had not ascended, he was simply saying that he wasn't leaving yet. He had not gone into heaven yet. There were days to spend on earth. And he's going to show himself to many people. He tells her, go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. What's he do? He gives her work to do. Now, why does he want that message communicated? Because in this gospel, Jesus had explained that returning to his father meant he had accomplished the Father's plan by lifting himself up on the cross and into heaven. He said in John 3.15, this alone was how he could accomplish and secure eternal life. And do you remember that he prayed in John 17 before he would be crucified, 
telling that the Father, he had accomplished everything that the Father had given him to do. And now he would return to the Father and be glorified in his presence with the glory he had with the Father before the world began. So his going back to the Father means he's finished the work. The plan is accomplished. Mary, go tell the disciples everything is unfolding according to plan and all that I promised. His disciples may have fled. They may have been ashamed to identify with him. But Jesus was not ashamed to be identified with them. He calls them his brothers. Do you see the, the goodness of Jesus? Not only does he find Mary, he's telling Mary, go find my brothers. Announce to them my coming ascension. I'm going to enter heaven as I said the Son of God in power to your Father and my Father, to your God and my God. Now we know from the beginning of this gospel that John has told us Jesus is the Word who is God. He is eternally Son. Every disciple of Jesus will be an adopted Son. While we relate to God the Father as Father, We do relate to him in a different way than Jesus, who is eternal son to the Father. We say of the son, he was eternally generated of the Father. Begotten, not made. So fundamentally, that means that this universe was created by, and it is ruled by, the God who is eternally Father. Now, there's a reason you know in your conscience This universe is personal because it was not created by an impersonal God, by the God who has always been and always will be father to the son and to many sons. And he knows his children to whom you have now have access through his son. I I hope that you do not think less of this access to the father than you're meant to. I hope that we aren't in any way taking access to God the Father for granted. For centuries, access to the Father in this way was unthinkable. And now it's opened up. Jesus gave Mary important work to do. What's amazing about Mary is that because she was a woman, she would not have been able to legally testify in a court in that day. We already saw that's one reason John would have highlighted John and Peter's presence at the tomb. Their testimony would have been legally valid, not Mary's. Yet her testimony is more than valid in the risen Jesus' economy. Her witness to his resurrection is credible. John and Peter saw the empty tomb. Mary and the other women were the first to see the risen Jesus That wasn't an accident. He chose to use her to give this formerly demon-possessed woman the privilege of being used in this way. There's no king like King Jesus. There's no kingdom like his kingdom. In verse 18, Mary went and announced, I've seen the Lord and told them everything. She was converted from being ruled by demons to being ruled by the Lord. 
And on the very first day of the new creation, she saw the risen Jesus, she worshiped him, and she obeyed him. She is an example for us. I can't imagine what it was for the disciples who had lost everything to hear that he was alive, that they had a father in heaven. They went from lost and ruined to found and fathered. Do you see the character of the risen Jesus? You should ask yourself why you think hard thoughts of him. He suffered, he died, and he was raised to prove he was everything he said he was, to accomplish salvation for ruined sinners. And for Mary, he moved her from weeping to wonder. And for his disciples, they went from fear to faith. That's the second point. The second scene we see in this passage, from fear to faith, verses 19 to 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So we go from the morning to the evening and the disciples behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. John and Peter would have been with them. Mary would have told them everything Jesus had said, but they've not seen him and they're afraid. They clearly don't know what's going on. (coughs) We know why they're afraid. They're afraid of the Jews. Now, what were they afraid of? Well, obviously, if they had killed their leader, they themselves who had followed him could and probably would be next. So they're hiding. I think it's important to see how honest John is about everything. He's not hiding what is bad. You can believe what he says about what is good. And the doors were locked when suddenly Jesus comes and stands and says, peace be with you. Now, it is very possible the door was just miraculously opened. That's what we read in Acts 12, that an angel did for Peter as he escaped from prison, that the door he walked through opened of its own accord, and then the angel left him. It's very possible the same happened here. But John wants you to see that the very real and embodied risen Jesus is with them. More witnesses are seeing him. And what does he say? Peace be with you. Something you hear so regularly here. Salam alaikum. Jesus's word is not a word of judgment. It's not a word of condemnation for the ways that they failed him. It's a word of comfort. Yes, it's a greeting. But the fact that Jesus says it twice and given who he is among them means they should see this as more than just niceties, pleasantries with no meaning. 
there had been much that Jesus had done to secure the substance of that greeting. The Savior had gone to great lengths to be in that room that evening. There's a number of things I hope you take away from the end of John's gospel. I certainly hope you will never fail to remember how Jesus relates to those who have failed him. How much more mercy is in Jesus than we would ever expect. They had failed Jesus. He stood among them purposely. I wonder if you failed Jesus this week. You afraid to come to Jesus? Think he's done with you? Not Jesus. He's not abandoning his disciples. He didn't write them off. In his present reign right now, he will not abandon you. Now, you may not know Jesus. You might be playing games with Jesus. Maybe you're unsure of Jesus or you're thinking about who Jesus is. Jesus had to die and rise to secure real peace with the living God. And when he says, peace be with you, it's not a vague, abstract peace. It was paid for with his blood. His blood spilled for sin and for sinners. That's why he went to the cross to purchase peace with God. So the God who is, who sees you and who knows you, if you're honest, you would admit, like me, you failed him. And if there's to be peace with God, he sets the terms. You're like me in this way. You, by nature, have lived for yourself. When you were made to live for him, you were made to know him and enjoy him and delight in him. And the peace that we need with God is the peace that Jesus has achieved. And what he does is he gives you grace to see yourself for who you really are so that you might have the grace to see him for who he really is and to come to him and to believe in him, to give your sin to him that he might give his righteousness to you. Only, only the risen Christ sees us for who we really are and stands ready to forgive us. So come to him in faith. If that's something that you're thinking about or want to talk about, or maybe you just assumed you're a Christian because you grew up in this or that country or culture, I would love for you just to take some time to consider what it really means to be a Christian. And I'd hope you'd feel the freedom to think about that and to ask hard questions about that here in this place. Brothers and sisters, Jesus' peace for his disciples is exactly what he had promised them. Turn to John 14. John 14, 27. Jesus said in the farewell discourse, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He's delivering on his promises. His peace comes at great cost. He gives peace to his disciples who will be opposed in this world. And notice that in giving this peace, what does he do immediately in verse 20? He shows them his hands and his side. He shows them the scars. 
They must see who he is as the one who sacrificed himself on the cross. Objective peace comes at the highest cost. It's a just peace. It's a lasting peace. He must have looked so different to them. The last they had seen him, he looked so terrible that he was as one from whom men hide their faces. And here he is raised with scars. He has the scars to prove that the sacrifice he gave was accepted. It's when they see the scars that they were glad and filled with joy. Jesus promised them this would happen. We read in John 16, 22, he said to them, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. No one will take your joy from you. Do you see that the risen Jesus keeps all of his promises at the highest cost possible? He keeps them and he will keep them. We do rejoice. We will rejoice. He comforts, he assures his disciples. He gives them joy. Where are you anchoring your own joy? Can it sustain your joy? Take the anchor of your joy and throw it on Jesus. And that will sustain you and steady you in the chaos of this world, all the highs and lows of your life. And remember the scars. Remember the cost that was counted for your joy. Well, he offers them peace. And then what does he do? Verse 21, he commissions them. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Like Mary, he's giving them work to do. Now, what does he mean by all this? In what way was he sent? He was sent by the Father to live and to die to accomplish salvation. He was sent to accomplish the Father's plan. In what way are the disciples sent? They're not sent to repeat what the Son has accomplished, but to bear witness to it. The risen Christ ministry will continue by the Spirit through them. We proclaim Him. We bear witness to Him. We do not repeat, nor can we, what He has done. Now, you probably have questions of what we're to make of Him breathing on them the Holy Spirit. Uh, does John not know about Pentecost? Well, I would argue he does. I do think it's wrong to read this as a two-stage spirit baptism. I don't think this is John's version of Pentecost. I think that just as Jesus had done when he washed his disciples' feet, that you could take it just as that alone, a, a foot washing, but it was a parable to explain to them, to point them toward the deeper spiritual cleansing that they needed for his disciples when he was going to the cross. I think this too is an enacted parable. That's what Don Carson calls it, pointing forward to the full provision that is to come. Remember, Jesus had explicitly said to his disciples in John 16, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage if I go away for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And it was then that the Spirit would come and convict the world in judgment 
and in unrighteousness. He did not forget what he had said and how the plan would unfold. This is a foretaste of what is coming to them. More evidence for this is we see a great difference between the disciples, even in the rest of this book, and the disciples at Pentecost when they received the Spirit. The coming of the Spirit is connected to their mission to proclaim the forgiveness of sins. So we must understand that what he's sending them to do is in connection to their work to proclaim the gospel, their own evangelism in which forgiveness is held out. They're sent to proclaim it to the world. And so when mankind hears the gospel, as mankind even today is hearing the gospel, men will either see and receive this costly forgiveness and so repent or not respond and so remain guilty in their sins. Jesus shows himself to his disciples and he commissions his disciples. But don't fail to see this. How many people are seeing the risen Christ eyewitnesses who saw him and in both of these scenes who touched him. Three saw the empty tomb. Mary Magdalene and the disciples saw him. They even saw the scars because the very real Jesus really rose from the dead. It is why Paul mentions so many names in 1 Corinthians 15. And what's remarkable about the risen Jesus coming to Mary And the disciples is that while the work of salvation is finished, the work that needs to be done in light of salvation being finished is just getting started. There's work to do. When you read 1 Corinthians 15, the longest chapter on the resurrection in which Paul soars on all that the resurrection means, he ends it in the most unexpected way. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In light of the resurrection, because of the great work of salvation being finished, he has work for us to do that will not be in vain. He has risen, he's kept his promises and he's given us good work to do.